Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. It's, it's, oh, that's you. It's Go me. ahead. It's me. Stop it. Sorry. <laughs> it's my live music Friday. And coming up later in the show where Monty will let me have my own time, known yeah. shots from the Lucky Shots, is coming in studio. They've got an album release party next Saturday in Florence, and Gnome is going to play for us live right here later on in the show. And after we hear what our first guest has to say, we may need a stiff drink. So we'll enter the cocktail Thunderdome with Sean Bilson from Judd's in Holyoke. <laughs> but our first guest is Northampton's Dr. Ira Helfand, MD, a retired internal medicine specialist in Springfield who has had over 45 years of experience in medicine. He's published studies on the medical consequences of nuclear war in the New England Journal of Medicine, the British Medical Journal, and the World Medical Journal. He's the co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the recipient of the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize, and he's co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Dr. Ira is also a long-term member of the International Steering Group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. That's two, kind of two organizations that Dr. Ira Helfand has been part of that have won the flipping Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> Last week, Dr. Helfand received Morehouse College's Gandhi King Ikeda Community Builders Award for the creation of an activist worked with Back from the Brink. Previous recipients include Coretta Scott King, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Nelson Mandela. That's good company to be in. Here's a clip from last week's ceremony at Morehouse in Atlanta. Dr. Ira Helfand, my friend, on behalf of the family, of Dr. Daisaku Ikeda and the 12 million Sokagakai Buddhists worldwide, we are proud to present with you this prismatic flame, a symbol of light and the Morehouse candle in the dark. And it is engraved Gandhi King Ikeda Community Builders Prize, Morehouse College, Atlanta, Georgia, USA, and the Gandhi King Ikeda Institute for Global Ethics and Reconciliation, Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel. On behalf of the family of Martin Luther King Jr., in honor of all the great work that you do to make this a safer world to live in, to create the beloved community that Martin Luther King Jr. preached, lived, and died for, it is my honor and pleasure to present this medal to you. Honorable Doctor, this is not a purse, but a library for you. Continue reading. <laughs> <laughs> it was really remarkable watching that part of the ceremony from Morehouse College from last week in Atlanta. And as we mentioned, the company that have won this award, in addition to the Nobel Peace Prizes that <laughs> the organizations you've been with. And I know, and I've known you for for a long time now, that's not, the awards are not why you got involved in, in these kind of campaigns. What was it that motivated you at the beginning as a physician to say nuclear war is something that I'm going to spend the, now the majority of your retired time, but even while you were still a practicing physician, uh, to try to, to be an activist to, to end nuclear war? Yeah, Monty, you know, I think the, the simple answer is that nuclear weapons are the greatest threat to health that's ever been. And what we've always been saying in the physicians' movement to, against nuclear weapons is that that's where we need to look at this. Um, we need to stop treating nuclear war as like this elaborate game of international chess and start considering what's actually going to happen to real human beings when these weapons are used. And 
when you refocus the conversation, when you make people confront what nuclear weapons are going to do, the destruction they're going to cause, you get a totally different conversation and one which leads to a much better outcome. We've seen this over the last decade with the negotiations for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, where internationally we were able to focus the conversation on the medical consequences, what the Red Cross calls the humanitarian impact. And when the diplomats started talking in these terms, they wanted to get rid of nuclear weapons because they understood in a way which they hadn't previously just how desperate the stakes are here and how horrible it's going to be if we don't get rid of these weapons and they get used. And meanwhile, the uh, as they call themselves, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists have what's called the Doomsday Clock. Right. Uh, it is a representation of how close we are to our own destruction by nuclear weapons. It's at 90 seconds to midnight. Midnight is not where you want to be. It's the closest it's ever been in the history of the doomsday clock. I'm assuming a lot of this has to do with the situation with Russia, with Ukraine, with That's NATO, what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, with the United States. And um, what's your take on, on the doomsday clock and where we stand with that right now, Dr. Ira Helfen from Northampton? Well, you know, the doomsday clock is just where it needs to be to reflect the reality that we're in right now. We are closer to nuclear war than we've ever been. And one of the biggest problems is that no one is acting that way. None of us. Right. We're in the 1980s, when we were also very close to nuclear war, everyone was terrified. It was what we talked about, what we thought about, what we had nightmares about. And that was good in a way. It was unpleasant, but it was good because it made us do the things we needed to do to change. And millions of people took political action, and we were successful. We ended the Cold War arms race. No one thought that could happen. In 1983, Ronald Reagan was placing missiles in Europe that could reach Moscow in six minutes, talking openly and frequently about fighting and winning a nuclear war in Europe. And two years later, he sat down with Mikhail Gorbachev and said nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. It was a complete change in the nuclear policy of the United States. And the activists, many right here in Western Massachusetts, which was sort of the epicenter of the National Freeze Movement, the activists who have participated in that campaign were responsible for that change in policy. And that's what we need to do again, because the problem today is that people aren't thinking about this. The danger is as great or greater than it was then, but it's not getting the attention that it needs. And that's what we're trying to change with the Back from the Brink campaign. I feel like this might be a, a matter of of saturation and apathy, which just kind of makes me sad on a lot of levels. But um, I can't remember where I was going with this. It's your turn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Live radio is so fun. It is fun. But, you know, one thing that um, we keep hearing about in the narrative going on with the Russia-Ukraine war is the use of small-scale or tactical nuclear weapons. And what I've learned from you over the years is that a small-scale nuclear war would be disastrous for humanity on this planet and that we've come to that point or almost to that point so frequently. Can you tell us your take on what a, these threatened to be small scale or tactical nuclear weapon battles would mean for humanity? Yeah, I mean, the major problem when we talk about tactical weapons is that people do equate tactical with small scale. Yeah. And they're not necessarily small. Some of the tactical weapons are six times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. um, there are smaller tactical weapons as well, but the definition of tactical really isn't related to size. It's related to the fact that they're meant to be used on a battlefield as opposed to be used to attack cities. Mm -hmm. um, and it is quite possible that 
at some point in this war, tactical weapons will be used. The problem is that when you do war games, when the experts sit down at their computers and try to game out what happens in different situations, every single time a tactical weapon has been used in a conflict involving NATO or Russia, it has escalated to all-out nuclear war. Now, the situation in Ukraine is a little bit different because Russia is not directly fighting another nuclear-armed state. They're fighting a non-nuclear-armed state in Ukraine. And it is conceivable that they could use a tactical nuclear weapon there and not have it escalate to all-out nuclear war. But I don't think we want to find out because since Nagasaki, this is a line we have not crossed and we don't know what's on the other side. And I think there's every reason to fear that any use of nuclear weapons will rapidly escalate completely out of control. It's interesting that like we have so so nuclear war and climate change being really, really closely tied, actually, I feel, especially since the explosion in Hiroshima, because there's that marker that has been in the environment that you can see on a lot of things. Like you, there's a line, it, you see it in science, where you can see like the nuclear... Um, not fallout, but like the repercussions of the the bomb having fallen. And if there's more of that, I, your entire work deals with what happens afterwards. So do people just not have a good enough picture of what really happens to us afterwards? Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, there are three things that people need to know at this moment in time. One is that not only is nuclear war possible, We're going to have a nuclear war if we don't start doing things very differently than the way we are right now. Secondly, they need to know that a nuclear war will be more horrible than anything they can possibly imagine. And people don't know what will happen if there's a nuclear war. They have a vague idea this would be very bad, which is true. But that's kind of very abstract and and almost meaningless. Concretely, what's actually going to happen to our cities, to our people, people do not know that. They literally don't. Um, uh, They think it's going to be like Hiroshima, which was terrible. But a modern nuclear war is going to be totally different than Hiroshima. That was one very small, by modern standards, bomb on one city. A war between the United States and Russia will involve many bombs each on many cities. And each of these bombs is going to be six to 50 times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. So that's the second thing people need to know. The third thing people need to know, though, which is equally important, is that this does not need to happen. Nuclear weapons are not a force of nature that we have no control over. It is not as though there's an asteroid coming at the planet and we should all just not look up. We built these weapons. They are little machines. They're about the size of the chairs that that the three of us are sitting in right now. We've dismantled 50,000 of them. We know how to do this. All that is lacking is the political will to dismantle the 13,000 nuclear warheads that remain in the world today. If we made that decision, they could all be gone in five years. Well, we need a little bit more hope like that, and we will get some more hope like that because there are some movements, there are some treaties, and there are some resolutions going through Congress, even in this country, about that. Coming up after the break, more with Dr. Ira Helfand, who's part of two organizations that have won the Nobel Peace Prize and has just received an award from Morehouse College, the Gandhi King Ikeda Community Builders Award. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on New England Public Media. Nuclear war.
Welcome back to the Fabulous Four on Three. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Chloe Swift. And we're here talking with Dr. Ira Helfand, who has just received last week in Atlanta at the historically black college Morehouse the Gandhi King Ikeda Community Builder Award. This Northampton based physician has also been part of two organizations that have been trying to end nuclear war, two organizations that have won the Nobel Peace Prize. And you gave us a sliver of hope that it is an achievable goal to not walk up to the brink of our own destruction if we had the political will to do so. Internationally, in 2017, there was a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. But a lot of the major world superpowers, including the United States, are not signatories to that treaty. Who is and who gives you hope that this that those countries who have said we are no longer going to build or, or propagate nuclear weapons, who, what countries are giving you the most hope out of that treaty? Well, you know, 122 countries voted for the treaty when it was adopted at the UN in 2017. And it is most of the countries in the global south have supported this effort. Not all of them have ratified the treaty yet, but they signed on to it, they voted to adopt it, uh, and they clearly support it. And I think we need to, to look at that closely because basically most of the world that is not does not have nuclear weapons or is not in a military alliance with a country that has nuclear weapons have made the decision that these weapons are just too dangerous for anybody on the planet to possess. And they're right. Um, it's also, by the way, the judgment of a lot of people in this country who are architects of our nuclear policy, um, people like Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, uh, Republican leaders uh, of the last half century, who were the people who designed our policy of building nuclear weapons, are now saying, uh, uh, Secretary Shultz before his recent death, saying, we have to get rid of these weapons. They are too dangerous. We are going to end up killing ourselves. And we need to listen to these voices because they are speaking the truth. They are right. We have come within minutes on at least six occasions that we know about of having an accidental nuclear war that an would have destroyed... accidental nuclear war. A, a nuclear war when one, either Moscow or Washington, actually began the process of launching its nuclear arsenal in the mistaken belief that the other side had already done so. Six times. At least that we know about. And at least one that we know about after the Cold War was over. Wow. What was that? What? Uh, that was in 1995 when the U.S. launched a, a rocket from Norway uh, to a, a, a weather rocket, and the Russians mistook it for uh, an attack on Moscow. So th this situation is insanely dangerous, it, and we need to do something about it. So here in the United States, what we're doing in recognition of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is to build a movement called Back from the Brink to try to get the United States, which does not belong to that treaty, to stop opposing the treaty, to embrace the treaty as the positive step that it is, and to take the step which we here in the United States need to take, which is to begin no negotiations with the other eight countries that have these weapons for a ver verifiable agreement to get rid of them according to an established timetable. If we don't do it all at the same time, uh, there, are, there are critics that say that the reason that Russia finally got the gumption to go and invade Ukraine is because Ukraine voluntarily relinquished their nuclear weapons years ago. If in an effort to get into NATO. Yeah, well, it, it, <laughs> and just in an effort, hopefully, to bring peace to the world, you would think as well. <laughs> if the United States decides we are going to end our nuclear program, but Russia does not, if, if the United States does, but India does not, you know, it, it, do we all have to do it at the same time? We or? do. Uh, and we're not advocating unilateral U.S. nuclear disarmament, which I think would be a mistake and in which I think would never happen. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is the United States needs to reach out to the other countries that have nuclear weapons and say very clearly, nuclear weapons don't make us safe. They're making all of us uh, less safe. They are the greatest threat to all of our security. 
And we need to all recognize that and all get rid of these weapons together. And this is not a fool's errand. Uh, we have seen this work in the past. In the 1980s, at the height of the Cold War, when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were, were really on the brink of war, almost went to war twice in 1983, Mikhail Gorbachev reached out to the United States and said, we've got to do something different. This is crazy. And probably he was not expecting to get the response he did. But the response he did get was, you're right. Let's figure out how to, how to change this from Ronald Reagan. So there's no guarantee that if the United States reaches out to the other countries, we'll be successful. But there's no reason to assume we won't be. And there's every reason to try because we do know what's going to happen if we don't get rid of these weapons. It is not a question of if. It is only a question of when they are used. So not to return it to climate change, but to return it to climate change in a way. Again, those these two issues are very closely tied of that of nuclear weapons and climate change. But nuclear power as possible energy solution, where does that fit within the scope of all of this? Well, as it relates to the question of nuclear war, we have to understand that nuclear power uses almost the same technology that is necessary to build nuclear weapons. And in fact, the Israeli nuclear program, the Indian nuclear program, the Pakistani nuclear program, the Iranian nuclear program, if they build a bomb, the North Korean nuclear program, have all grown out of civilian nuclear, nuclear programs. And if we continue to promote nuclear power around the world, we have to understand that a consequence of this will be the further proliferation of nuclear weapons. And I think that's, that, is, that is the ultimate answer to the question, is there a role for nuclear power? There are other objections to it as well, which for time reasons I won't get into. <laughs> I think we need to understand that th it is possible for us to make rapid progress on this question of getting rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, the Back from the Brink campaign uh, currently has a resolution in the Congress, uh, H.R.E.S. 77, which was introduced by Congressman Jim McGovern and which has been endorsed, uh, co-sponsored also by Congressman Richie Neal. Uh, we're actively trying to get additional co-sponsors. At this point, we're up to 18 sponsors total, which is actually quite a good number considering that it was just introduced a couple of months ago. We're hoping to get a companion resolution introduced into the United States Senate. And one thing that people can do is to contact Senator Markey's office and Senator Warren's office and tell them that they would like to have the senators introduce a companion resolution to H.R.E.S. 77 in the United States Senate calling on the United States to adopt the Back from the Brink platform. Uh, neither one of them has agreed to do this yet. Um, we are in conversation with both offices, and um, they need to hear from their constituents that this is a high priority. Part of the problem is that the leadership in this country just isn't paying attention to this. There are a lot of other problems that they are paying attention to, and it's important. They're, they're real problems as well. But if we don't prevent nuclear war, Nothing else that we do is going to make a difference. And as opposed to the 1980s, when people did prioritize preventing nuclear war, this is just not getting the attention that it needs today. Was it media? Was it movies? I remember as a kid in the 1980s growing <laughs> up, it seemed like almost every other movie had some sort of like threat of nuclear war element to it. Is that, is that what it would take again to get the U.S. public behind such a campaign? It feels like we've done kind of the equivalent of shoving everything in the closet and closing the door and going, well, that's over. While, yeah. while <laughs> you know, fully funding without question the Ukrainians in the middle of this horrible war, but that could lead to a, a huge nuclear disaster. Yeah, I think uh, clearly the popular culture could play an enormous role as it did in the 1980s. 
um, the movie The Day After, mm. uh, which mm. depicted what a nuclear war would look like fairly accurately given the understanding at the time, um, was viewed by over 106 million people in the United States. And there was a national debate about whether this should be shown on television for a whole month before it was actually shown. We don't have anything like that today, and that would help. The media have tended to ignore this issue by and large. It's changing a little bit since the invasion of Ukraine, but still, uh, there's not nearly enough attention uh, in the media to this, and our politicians aren't talking about it. You know, there were, there were uh, with, with important examples, exceptions rather, like Congressman McGovern and Congressman Neal, who are speaking out and calling for the U.S. to adopt the Back from the Brink platform. Uh, a lot of local governments have spoken up. The city council here in Springfield has. City council in Northampton, uh, the town council in Amherst. Uh, Holyoke has also endorsed this campaign. Um, but there are other communities here in Western Mass that haven't yet, and we hope they will. Many organizations, local faith communities, uh, rotary clubs, um, civic groups have endorsed the campaign. And um, that's something that, that we hope we'll see more of as well. Our website is preventnuclearwar.org. And uh, people who are interested in joining the campaign can go to the website, sign up as individuals, or figure out how to get their church or their Rotary Club or their union or their professional association to join the list of over 350 organizations around the country that have endorsed this campaign so far. Well, all politics is local, and it may seem very distant that a nuclear war is something that your Rotary Club may have anything to do with. But as Dr. Ira Helfen from Northampton has said, if a nuclear war, even a small-scale nuclear war, were to happen anywhere in the world, it would have drastic consequences for everyone in the world. If we want to learn more about the Back from the Brink campaign, give us that website one more time. It's www.preventnuclearwar, all one word, preventnuclearwar.org. Dr. Ira Helfand from Northampton, retired internal medicine specialist in Springfield who has been part of not one, but two Nobel Peace Prize winning organizations to try to end nuclear war and has just received Morehouse College's Gandhi King Ikeda Community Builders Award for the creation of an activist work with that Back from the Brink campaign. Thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today, Dr. Ira. Thank you both for the opportunity to speak with you. Oh, gladly. I do think we need to have a cocktail now, though, for oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, we'll enter the cocktail Thunderdome. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. What are you doing? Uh, it's the cocktail Thunderdome. Drinking midday? That was such a heavy conversation about nuclear war <laughs> that uh, I think what we need to do now is drink. drink. And we are here at the new... Hamden Street Studios of NEPM, and we're in the new kitchen that still doesn't even have any ice in the ice maker yet. You had to run quickly to the convenience store to get us ice. I did, because we can't make cocktails without ice, and it's not Wine Thunderdome Friday. It is Cocktail Thunderdome Friday. Two cocktails enter. One cocktail leaves. Should you come up with a new Cocktail Thunderdome theme song, Khalid? I Yes, because I'm afraid of what you'll do. <laughs> But we're here with Sean Bilson from Judd's at Gateway City Arts in Holyoke, a mixologist. How long have you been a bartender? That's a wonderful question. I think I've been bartending for about five-ish years now. I got my start at the Alvis Stone up in Montague. I love that place, being yeah. from Montague and all. I worked there, it was, uh, I think the three people I can really credit to showing me everything know. Trevor LeBlanc was the bar manager at the time. The general manager was Deidre Kelly, who's a good friend of mine. And then another good friend of mine, Alyssa Castine, really just kind of taught me everything I know. And now I've gone ahead and 
and now the bar manager at Gateway City Arts in Holyoke. What are we pitting against each other? So we're actually starting with two cocktails. Well, one's more classic than the other. We're going to do a paper airplane and a last word, both of which are riffs on a Corpse Reviver number two. Is it an Easter cocktail? You can drink it at Easter. Corpse Reviver? Yeah. You're a funny man. Thanks. You're yeah, a funny I mean, man, I mean, <laughs> the Corpse Reviver rose on Easter, yeah. so <laughs> I don't know if it applies to him. I don't either. We're bad Catholics. Yes. <laughs> I was a theology major too. Was I supposed so. to be Catholic to get on this show? No. no. All right. So the one I'm making right here, uh, it is the paper airplane. I was told to pick two cocktails. These are two I really enjoy. And the thing to sort of bind them together is one, to go back to the Corpse Survivor number two, it is four ingredients of equal parts, gin forward. The last word being gin, luxardo maraschino liqueur, which is made from the everything but the fruit of the cherry. Normally green chartreuse. Uh, I did not have green chartreuse in my cabinet, so we're using yellow. And then lemon juice. It's green on the radio. It's green on the radio, yeah. It, it's got a color for radio. And then the paper airplane is a riff on that that is bourbon forward with bourbon, Aperol, Amaro Nonino, and lemon juice. All of them are equal proportions. You're supposed to do three-fourths of an ounce, but I don't have a measuring line in this shot glass, so winging it. It's called a paper airplane, after all. I mean, if yeah. it's equal proportions, then we're fine, yeah. because yeah. it's equal. As long as they're equal, then it's cool. Yeah. It's one of the nice things about like really well-balanced cocktails like that. You don't necessarily have to remember anything except to keep all of the parts the same. All right, I'm gonna do the, I'm gonna do the fun part real quick. A snob about ice. It is okay to say yes. Break something? Yeah, the glass. Son of a bitch! Ooh. <laughs> Who cares? A little bit of glass in there. That's the show, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Why um, shaking cocktails, yes. apart from just looking cool like your Tom Cruise from the movie Cocktail, is an important... I've never seen that movie. I actually don't know if I've ever seen yeah. it either. Why is the shaking an important part of cocktail making, though? When you are building a drink, if I'm going to be simplistic about it, there's four different ways to build a drink. You've got your shake, which you just saw me do. You've got your stir, taking a spoon, mixing all around. You've got your building the glass, which is if you're just, you know, piling liquid into the cup and sending it off. And then one that is a bit of a, you know, hack is just your shake and dump where you put it in, you toss it between two glasses and you send it off. Mm -hmm. The reason you do different versions is based on the viscosity of the liquid in there. When you shake a cocktail, you're trying to get all the liquid to make an oval inside the shaker because you are hoping not to break up all the ice, but round the edges of the ice to gently introduce water. And in the shake, you are introducing air into the mixture to emulsify the juices. You inject air into the process so everything becomes the same viscosity so you don't end up with a layered cocktail. Aha. Uh -huh. So it's not just show off and break a glass in there. Yeah. Okay, now we got a Chemex filter. <laughs> so that we can filter out all the glass, but still enjoy all the precious, precious liquids. All right. And at Gateway, I got the pleasure of having my own station at the kitchen now, and I never expected this was going to be one of the things I'd be allowed to do. <laughs> Which, what, make cocktails or no. pour it through a Chemex filter? Uh, strain glass out through a Chemex filter. <laughs> We're with Sean Bilson from Judd's at Gateway City Arts in Holyoke and the Cocktail Thunderdome today. Okay. Are you more of a, a gin-forward cocktail person, Khalees, or more of a bourbon-forward cocktail person? I like well-balanced cocktails regardless. I do too, actually. Like, I used to think I hated gin, but I really do like it. Yeah, I'm glad that people are coming back around to gin. I still have my Gateway ones where I'm like, you, you don't like You mean like, like Judd's at Gateway? Like Gateway City Arts? 
Nice shameless plug. plug. That's a shameless plug. You know Good they're job. having a Mother's Day brunch in Bazaar. At Gateway City Arts in Holyoke, we're doing a Mother's Day brunch and Safe Passage fundraising concert. That's gonna be May 14th. Uh, brunch is 10 to 2 and the concert starts at 2. It's gonna be free with a suggested donation. Megan Kelsey Wright on piano and Sue Curian on the flute. Shameless plug. <laughs> Man, doing my job for me. You, know, you guys can handle this. I'll get yeah. out of here. Um, but to, to sort of bounce on what you're saying about gin, I do think part of it too is that when I first started drinking and a lot of my friends, gin's like, oh yeah, you have that in gin and tonics. That's it. So you had botanicals on top of quinine. And, and if you didn't like quinine, you weren't going to like gin. And I think as I've worked my way more and more through this industry, there is still among some bartenders think like, uh, yeah, I don't like gin. A lot of people haven't really just played around with all the goofy things it can do because each botanical is its own little like node of flavor. That y You've seen ratatouille, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's Rakakuni? Yeah, Rakakuni, yeah. <laughs> Rakakuni taught me so much. Each little like pop of color is just a different little herbal note in gin that you can activate in different ways with different liqueurs. And you actually see that with these two here. Granted, we are using bourbon and gin, but they're gonna do similar things to your palate and uh, we got all the glass out of the shaker, so I'm gonna make the next one. <laughs> Did we mention what type of, type of bourbon we used in the oh, first yeah. one? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me tell you about um, the stuff that's in this paper airplane. So I'm using Four Roses bourbon. Then we're using Aperol. It is a bitter orange liqueur, but Aperol has a lot more sweetness to it and doesn't lean into the bitterness nearly as much. Um, Amaro Nonino. Amaros are their own classification of liquor. The only thing that binds them together is that all of them will be bitter and herbal of some variety. Everything else changes completely. Even though um, Nonino is a pretty sweet Amaro. Oh, I would shotgun that bottle if I could. I really like Amaro <laughs> I really like Amaro Nonino. I really like Amaro Nonino as yeah. well. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a really good one. Yeah, well, if you like it, you should drink this. Okay. Well, see, I'm making the thing, but I didn't invent the cocktail. I actually got a little bit of history. The Paper Airplane, it's an IBA official cocktail. It's an International Bartenders Association. It Really what that means is that it is a well-known cocktail. Most nice places you go to, they'll generally know how to make it and have the things on hand to make it for you. It was developed around 2007, like 2007, 2008, which is the same time that the last word re-entered the public consciousness. It was developed at the bar The Violet Hour in Chicago as a riff on the last word. The etymology of the name is that apparently the cocktail's name is a reference to the MIA song Paper Planes. But one of my favorite facts about bar history is that all bar stories and bar history is passed down drunk mouth to drunk mouth to drunk mouth to drunk mouth. <laughs> so you always kind of got to take it with the grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, so that's a paper airplane. What did you think? I love paper airplanes. I am one of those people who goes to bars and then has to explain this cocktail to people. The last oh, time yeah. was in Knoxville where we went to a place. They had a pecan infused bourbon. I was like, you need to make a paper airplane for, for me with that. And he's like, what is that? And I'm like, oh no, I've come to the wrong bar. <laughs> because I am a terrible snob that way. We had to make some concessions, but it ended up being pretty delicious. Yeah, I love paper airplanes. I think they're a really great cocktail, especially for people who aren't so much into whiskey. I think it's great. Yeah, and it's well balanced. I think after on the finish, you know that it's a bourbon, but at first when it's going down, it tastes just so sweet and fruity and light. It reminds me of like an orange popsicle that you would get from like an ice cream truck, which I <laughs> kind of love. So this is one of those cocktails that when somebody comes up to me and says, I don't like bourbon, I'm like, yeah. let me show you. Uh -huh. Let me show you that actually you do like bourbon. And 
and <laughs> here we go. Yeah, have it in orange popsicle form, melt it into a plastic cup in a kitchen at a new studio in Springfield for doing the public media. <laughs> we got we have a little bit more to put in another cup, so we'll see what we can do. This this next one, the last word, I sort of do the same thing, and actually a good friend of mine, I go LARPing with all the with him all the time. Uh, his name's what, Ivan. What is uh, LARPing for those non-nerds? Live, Live action, action role, role playing. playing. Who do you LARP as? There's a game called Avarice that takes place in Charlton. I play Sean Siegel, who started off as a battlefield doctor and then bumbled his way upward and is now the head of a pirate fleet. I love it. I'm not the only one. That's <laughs> nah, not the only one. All right, let, let's talk about cocktails. Let's talk about this. Uh, but I want to talk, the, the reason I was bringing up my buddy Ivan is because he is a staunchly anti-gin proponent. He's been bartending longer than I have. We've had similar like sort of career trajectories. He convinced me that I actually do like spicy drinks and I'm convincing him that he actually does like gin. Yeah. Um, How can you be a so, bartender and not like gin? People like what they like and I they know. get stuck in their yeah. ways. Yeah. And again, part of the really fun thing of the Jennifer style revival is that we have all of these other options instead of just going to Bombay and Beefeater mm -hmm. and like Boodles. It's like your only gin go-tos. Mm -hmm. There is a world outside of London dry and general dry styles. Anyway, yeah. off of my soapbox. Which that's a good soap. I'm going to push you off your soapbox. <laughs> I'm gonna, that's actually one of the reasons why I grabbed the Empress gin for the sex cocktail, not just because it's the only gin I had in my cabinet, but also <laughs> because Empress gin, it became really popular because, well, you're looking on a shelf and it is stunning. Everybody on the radio can absolutely see this beautiful blue color. Yeah, it's um, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous. And so just on the shelf, it's stunning. And they're like, well, that's a gin? Uh, they grab it. The appeal of butterfly flowers as part one of the botanicals to make it that color. And that's why it's blue. It's not just food dye. No. Correct. Yeah, it's it actually adds to the flavor. It adds a nice touch of sweetness to it that you don't get out of a lot of other styles of gin. And the funnest thing it does is when you add citrus to it, it turns it pink. Whoa. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and whip So it's like those cocktail. horrible gender reveal parties that they do. <laughs> this is the only one that I would ever accept. Yeah. And it's both blue and pink. So I'll talk a little bit about the ingredients in this cocktail before I actually start putting it in the cups and break another glass. We talked about the Empress Gin. The next thing in there is Luxardo Maraschino Liqueur. This liqueur is made from the pits, stems, skins, leaves, everything but the meat of the cherry. So you get a little touch of cherry flavor, but a lot of herbalness. The next one, we have chartreuse, green chartreuse, yellow chartreuse. The difference between the two is that green is going to be a lot more bitter, a lot more botanical, a lot more herbal forward, where yellow chartreuse has a little bit more sweetness, uh, is a little bit more balanced. This cocktail generally calls for green chartreuse, but once again, that's not what I had in my cabinet, and mm -hmm. it's a really expensive bottle. I'm going to go ahead and do that cool thing where I mix it all together. All right, and this one's called the last word. This one's the last word. Yeah, so it doesn't look blue anymore. Again, the color's a little off because yellow, yellow chartreuse is yellow. That is delicious. <laughs> this is delicious. That is delicious. And so I've got a little segment here out of the book Imbibe by David Wunderich. This is talking a little bit about the last word cocktail itself. In Detroit, the Dublin Minstrel was a popular vaudevillian. And so somebody took him to the Detroit Athletic Club for a drink. And before long, this beverage just ended up on the menu and sort of pervaded the consciousness. I think we lost it around Prohibition. We, I think, truly lost it around 1950. That's around the time Playboy published its bartender manual, and the Playboy bartender manual was aimed at people looking to make cocktails at home. As such, most things in there were limited towards one to two ingredients stirred or shaken as needed. And that's how we actually see the prevalence of the martini today. That and James Bond, probably, right? And James Bond. Except yeah. that James Bond drinks Vespers, not he martinis. A, he drinks a Vesper in only one book. Fair. Yeah. Bartender I, I, trivia. Bartender trivia. <laughs> 
Uh, bartender trivia. How quickly can you drink that, Monty? Oh, I could drink it really quickly, but why would I? No, this I want like, to savor this. And that is another thing. Nope, nope. This is so nice. Yeah, we haven't described it, but it's lemony. Mm-hmm. The, all those botanicals on, on the end, it but, starts out a little sour and a little sweet, and then it just erupts in herbally. But none of the Christmas tree botanicals that really turn a lot of people off of gins. None of the junipery things that some people really are averse to. It's no. super delicious, it's really elegant. Cool. We've been talking a little bit about celery, and it, there is a little almost like a, a savory celery salt mm-hmm. kind of thing that I'm getting from this too, like some sort of mm-hmm. vegetable in a good There's way. There's a little tiny bit of umami-ness mm. to it. Sean Bilson, Judd's, Gateway City Arts, Cocktail Thunderdome. Two cocktails enter, one cocktail leaves. We've got the paper airplane, versus the last word. So the two joining components of this are that they each have four ingredients in equal parts and they both use lemon juice as their their sour component as the, like the yeah. one other thing is they are both riffs off of a corpse reviver which is an absinthe brunch cocktail. So both of them Oh, I think that Judd's is having brunch for Mother's Day. Oh, for Mother's Day <laughs> on May 14th. Shameless plug. So you can really, looking at the two cocktails, see that they share DNA. They hit a lot of the similar notes in your palate, but take it in very different directions. So I guess the question is, who won? Okay, who wants to vote first? I never vote first. I vote for the last word. If I were to drink straight bourbon versus gin, I would go with bourbon. But there is that savory quality to this one, the balance of sweet and sour, and I think this Empress Gin seems fantastic so i almost want to taste that on its own just so i can get a little extra glimpse of it but so and i say this knowing that paper planes are my go-to generally when i don't know a bar and i just i'm sort of like i need something that i don't need to question you about but the last word is just maybe it's because it's becoming spring and all of the lovely floral things that happens in the sun's out but like this is kind of perfect for today i'm going with the last word sean bilson bartender Judd's Gateway City Arts, the last word wins, but what is your favorite? I mean, honestly, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to go with the last (laughs) word on this one. Coming in, I thought it was going to be the paper airplane, and that might just be because I've been on a paper airplane kick. But Knocked it out of the park. Yeah, i got to go with the last word. Also, when I worked at the Alphastown, it is the first cocktail I ever made, so it's got a really kind of like special place in my heart. It's the first and last word. Funny guy. The alpha and Omega of cocktails for Sean Bilson. This is a funny guy right here. But you, everybody should listen to this gentleman and on the massive radio. Massive shout outs to that beautiful thing that you've made with Slivovitz that's currently on the menu. Oh, yeah. like that cocktail um, is. I have to try that because I'm not a fan of Slivovitz. Oh, I will change your mind. Uh, let me let me tell you about that one. I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation. Sorry, Vitek. Vitek's my boss. Uh, one of the owners at Gateway City Arts. So, <clears throat> since Judd's is a Czech place, whenever I'm writing the cocktail menus, I really try and use Czech ingredients. Slivovitz being the obvious one, but plums are massive in uh, Czech desserts. So this drink is called the Švedka Švedka, which translates to plum plum. It should be called plum 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 because there's three variants in here you start with a Avril plum gin plum brandy which sliv of it's classic a little bit of this amaro nonita that we we're working with and then grapefruit juice for acid and then you drop a candied plum into the center of the drink and it is delectable yeah. it is to keep on with the theme a slight variation on a paper plane uh-huh mm-hmm. it all comes full circle Thanks for coming down and, right, and yeah, doing Thank you for us. having me. This yeah, has been a blast. Super fun. We'll do it again. Coming up, Gnome Shots of the Lucky Shots joins us for Live Music Friday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. 
Welcome back to the fabulous 413. It's Live Music Friday, and joining us in studio is Noam Schatz, who describes himself as a drummer, multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, family man, dog walker, circuit bender, mushroom hunter, and forest philosopher. Noam was the drummer from the Shootsbury Mass-based Mobius Band and has laid the sticks aside. He's written a new song every two weeks since 2016. Still true, Noam? That is still true. <laughs> that, that is, is still true. And full disclosure, Noam and I were in a band together in the early 10s called The Sometimes. That's it was right. a pile a, of fun. An award-winning band. Award-winning band. This is fact. <laughs> what did you win? We won the Happy Valley get uh, the Happy Valley Showdown. Yeah, it was like a in 2012 like or 13. We oh. never redeemed our prize. We sadly, sure didn't, so. but, but we did win. Yeah. The album release party for Gnome Shots' is latest project, The Lucky Shots, is next Saturday at JJ's Tavern in Florence. The album is titled "Count to Nothing." Give us a song. All right, here we go. It was the day after the best day of your life. All your friends and your family and your sparkling brand new wife All your hopes and your dreams Busting down at the seams But it's alright Baby, it's alright It was just you and the old man standing in front of the house Wallpaper was peeling and the ceiling was about to give out. So much time that you wasted back then, you can still taste it, but it's alright. Baby, it's alright. Been young before, been young before. Shots this live music Friday from the band The Lucky Shots. 
spelled differently than your last name. But That's right. An album release party <laughs> for the album Count to Nothing at JJ's Tavern a week from tomorrow, April 29th. We want to get into your mushroom hunting skills in a second. Okay. Here, but you uh, you were a drummer and now you're uh, a front man, a yep. songwriter. Yes. Uh, you have a songwriting kind of game that has kept you writing a song every two weeks for now seven years? That's right. Um, a couple friends and I started back at the beginning of 2016, and we would go around a circle, and someone would put in a prompt, which could be something procedural, like write a song in this key, this thing, or this tempo, or based on this artist, or could just be a poetic line or a thought, like the thin edge of the wedge, or... She, she says goodnight like poetry was last week's wow. prompt. You I know. like that one. That's cool. pretty good, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then you have two weeks to write a song and record a version of it and then share it with the other guys. And we all would listen to each other's uh, songs and critique them. So we learned what our strengths and weaknesses were and how to give uh, good uh, critique and feedback. And uh, we formed a little band and played some shows for a little while with the four of us. And, uh, yeah, it's been really fun, and I still have been doing it every two weeks. So It's a good practice to get into. It is a really good It's practice. an amazing practice to get into because um, I've gotten so much better. And I wasn't really a songwriter before. Like you said, I played the drums and uh, never really sang in bands or anything. So You totally sang in bands. Not, not necessarily well, lead, yeah. but you definitely sang in bands. I you sang, sang along poorly. You sang in Mobius bands. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you, you could see my mouth moving, but you maybe didn't want to listen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if yeah. that's true. But, one, um, one of the many facets that make you human, like one of the, the, the extra things in your long list of things that you do is that you go mushroom hunting. That's right. And I envy this because I see the pictures of the beautiful mushrooms, both edible and not, that you you find out in the wilderness. How yes. did you get into mycology? Well, I, I work outside. My wife and I own a dog walking business, and I've spent the last 20-plus years hiking for my job, which is another amazing thing that I get to say is about me. And um, I play with dogs outside, and, uh, you know, you just when you're in the woods every day, you see how they change, and you see the things that come up and the things that disappear, and the mushrooms were just really interesting to me because there's so many colors and shapes, and once you sort of get keyed in, it was really like, what is all this stuff? So... It was around the same time that my son was turning three, my firstborn son, and he was asking questions about the universe. And I said, I better figure out what I think about the universe so I can explain <laughs> it to somebody. <laughs> and um, so I started to get kind of into science and the science of the mycology. And I bought a, probably 25 books of mushroom books and nice. read them all because I'm a habitual autodidact and <laughs> tend to get obsessed with various things and then, you know, Deep, deep dive. So, uh, yeah, I just got way, way into that. And now, you know, a bunch of years later, now everybody's talking about mushrooms, and it's kind of, like, amazing. It's because so. of The Last of Us. It's not no. just because of The Last of Us. No, it's because this is a long, it's a trend. It's yes. a long trend. I'm going to make an executive decision this Live Music Friday that we're just going to say who's going to be on on Monday, and then we're going to let Noam play us out. How about that? I like that. Monday in the Fabulous 413, we'll talk with BJ Iyer, Young Sol Yoon, and Tech Kim about their performance Codemakers, part of the UMass Bach Festival happening Sunday afternoon on campus at UMass. Tomorrow, and then we've got Earth Day on Monday. We'll hear about what some of the five colleges are up to in regards to climate change and carbon neutrality with Beth Hooker, Director of Sustainability at Smith, Ezra Small, Campus Sustainability Manager at UMass, and Sarah Draper, Sustainability Manager at Hampshire. Now, Gnome Shots, play us out on All this right. Live Music Friday on the fabulous 413. You can check them out live at JJ's Tavern a week from tomorrow in Florence. The prompt for this song was to take a sad song and make it better. 
I don't know how he came up with that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who, who came up with that. But was um, it Jude? It may have been okay. Jude. So uh, this is a happy song about how I like sad songs. Uh-uh. Oh, why do sad songs always sound so good? You haven't called in. I wish you would turn the lights down low and the music up. I made a mess, I over poured my cup. Tell me why do sad songs always sound so right at the end of the bar, at the end of the night? Play some old George Jones, he's singing my pain. Cause I know that you're never coming back. to the feeling deep inside Oh, why do sad songs always fill that hole? You know I love to get down Love to rock and roll But when you get real quiet And sing real sweet It moves my soul And it makes my heart beat Tell me why do sad songs Always make me glad Had me spinning around Down the road and back Found myself at the edge Of a happening scene But I never found a truth Which I could believe Sometimes you got to just sit and cry To get to the feeling Sometimes a sad song 